Welcome back to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas and I'm bringing you a seminar from the Churches That Change Communities conference today on the Jubilee Plus podcast. It's on a very important subject, suicide and self-harm. So please be aware if this content may be difficult for you. This seminar is brought to us by Corinne Pilling from Sanctuary and you can find the details of Sanctuary at sanctuarymentalhealth.org or by following the link in the show notes attached to this episode, which you get to by clicking on the episode title on most podcast apps. And there are also details of other organisations who can help you or someone you know who is experiencing a mental health crisis. Corinne Pilling spent 20 years working with homeless people and he's the UK director of Sanctuary, offering the Sanctuary course, which is a free resource to help build churches who tackle mental health stigma and offer safe support to everyone. First of all, I'm really encouraged that we've got such a full room on a topic like this at this time of the day. So thank you to you all for deciding to put some time into this really important topic. Um, it's an area where I'm very aware that many of us will, will have a story of being impacted in some way by the topic of suicide. And it might be to do with the people that we've supported. It might be to do with those in our family. It might be about ourselves. All of those issues mean that, we, um, that this topic needs to be approached with a level of sensitivity and a, a recognition, I think, of that it is a very vulnerable topic. And, um, and so before I do anything else, I'd just like to invite you to pray with me so we can really just bring this before the Lord, the, you know, the God who, who understands and knows our every hurt, that the one that knows our vulnerability. So let's, let's pray for a moment and just join in humility before him. Father God, um, when we talk of this issue, um, only you really know how each one of us feels. And you know the depth of the challenge that we faced, um, for some of us, the pain that we carry around this topic, and, uh, and the healing that we long for. Um, may that be personal healing, may that be within our communities and the ones that, that we love and care for. Lord, may you be honoured. May your spirit of peace be upon us as we talk this through. Lord, give us our open hearts, but ones that are looking to you and know that you are the God of hope. You are the one that will lead us forward into new life. In Jesus' name, amen. The World Health Organization suggests that a person dies by suicide um, once every 40 seconds around the world, globally. And it's the 14th leading cause of death um, internationally. And this works out to be probably around 6,500 people in the UK every year. And in England, um, in 2021, um, 5,219 suicides were recorded. So these figures tell the story of a global challenge that we are all part of by being part of the human race. And, and equally, um, we might be one of those people who have endured a season of suicidal thoughts ourselves. Uh, we might be one of those people that have attempted to end our life. We might be one of those people who is struggling with this right now. And equally, we may know somebody who is in that position at the moment. Either way, we're all caught in the fallout of a topic like this. 
And I think it's important to recognize as we as churches and, and followers of Jesus come together on this topic that um, there's no demographic that's immune. Um, and that includes faith communities. Um, that really does include all of us here. And I think that's one of the reasons why within this session, I hope that we can take a step forward um, together to be the people that are willing to collectively tackle that stigma. It's really important. Suicide can be preventable, but the things that help that are, the, are it's to do with openness and our willingness as a community to talk about it. You know, there's no clear and easy solution when it comes to the complexity of why somebody wants to end their life. But we can all be part of being a willingness to talk about these things as we look to support others within our community. So that's the invitation today. And I think the other invitation is this, and that's to offer the consistent message that, that God's grace and compassion are available to everybody, um, including those living with suicidal ideation, um, those who have attempted suicide, and those who have died by suicide, and the loved ones that they leave behind. No one, no one is absent from God's grace and compassion. And as this topic um, is close to the surface, and it may be close to the surface for many of us directly, a quick word of safety, and that's that if you feel impacted by any issue today, I'd really just ask you to take care of yourself in this space. Um, if you feel that you need to leave at any point, comfortably do. Equally, if there's something that's raised for you and you feel that you would need support, it might be good right now to think of someone that you can ask for that um, at b after this session. In turn, I will also be available if you would like to talk to anybody and it feels more comfortable to do that with someone you don't know. I'd be very happy to listen. So to that end, um, I've been asked to particularly talk about um, providing a framework for how we support people that we might be concerned um, are expressing su suicidal ideation, whose mental health may have deteriorated in the time that we've seen them. So it's quite a specific brief, which in a sense is good because of the limited time that we have, because this topic could cover so much. But it does mean that we leave out a few crucial parts, I think it's just worth naming. One, I think, is um, maybe that bigger question of what it means to flourish and thrive and recover well when you've experienced this. So we won't be able to really cover that with any real depth today. Um, I think perhaps that there are other areas as well which are around sort of how we, within what we offer, whether it's a community offer around mental health, um, how that might tie into other strategies that perhaps, um, you know, our local authorities are, are, in, are involved in instigating. So we're, we're not really looking at this so strategically. We're really looking at those, that specific window of people that we might be in contact with who are, who may be, um, experiencing very difficult emotions that could be leading to suicidal ideation and, and what may happen there. So that's just to kind of frame our time. Essentially, this is what we'll be covering. I'm going to give you a bit of context. We've done a little bit of that already. Um, what, naming a bit what's happening for people when they feel suicidal a lot of the time and trying to offer a bit of an insight and understanding. Um, thinking about who might be at risk so we can we can start to think about people within our context that might be those most at risk and what the factors are of risk and I'd like your involvement to kind of help with that um, and then 
within it, we're going to offer just a very simple three-step process for supporting people where we have a concern that they may be um, experiencing suicidal ideation. We're going to look at some resources that are available that can help to follow up and also good things to look at after this webinar seminar. And also just, wow, Zoom, it's just kind of turned me into a different person. And, uh, and also beyond the crisis, thinking about rebuilding hope and, and then resources that we as Sanctuary can offer you uh, as part of your journey. So that's what we're, look, what we're looking at for the remainder of this time. What I'd like from you now is a show of hands. Okay, so how many people have offered support to somebody who is experiencing, in the broadest sense, a mental health challenge? So in this room, almost everybody. And uh, keeping your hands up, um, how many of you with the hands up would say that that was an expected part of your role in life, in your job? Okay, many. How many of you with the ha keeping hands up um, feel that they've received training to do this? So uh, about half and half. So okay, well th this is really good. And it's an indicator of the fact that it's becoming much more normal in our settings to, um, to respond to people in, in distress um, as a result of their, their mental health and what they may be experiencing in that time. However, one of the things I often hear from people who are involved in frontline work, and particularly church leaders, is that people don't want to make things worse. I don't know if that resonates with you, but um, it's often a concern that people come to me with. So, um, and I, I hear that. I think, you know, pe there is sensitivity around this topic. People don't want to say the wrong thing. People want to make sure that they're being actively helpful and supportive. And yet, Offering active support can be a huge part of tackling the stigma attached to these issues and a big part of what we would call suicide prevention. Um, quick word on Sanctuary. So uh, Sanctuary, who I, I work for and I lead the work in the UK, we exist really to help churches have conversations around mental health. At the heart of what we do is offering free resources to you to, to help that along. We think every church should be a place where uh, we can say, yeah, I'm happy to and comfortable to share that I am experiencing a mental health challenge. And we want to help every church to get to that point if they're not there already. And we think that part of that is about both really good information about mental health, but it's also about a, a deeply, a deeply kind of Christian understanding of who we are as human beings. And it's about understanding who we are before God and each other. And so we really put time and effort into thinking about this topic theologically. That said, today there won't be a lot of that because <laughs> it's quite a practical course. But um, if you do look into the Sanctuary course, which I'll give you information about, you'll see that there's a lot of theology that really grounds it. It means that as church, we can have a conversation that feels true to our faith tradition, true to the Bible. And that's important too. So um, on this topic, um, something I want to just start with is this, this comment, suicide thrives in the dark. Two quotes. The first one is for Wendy Robinson, who she's the CEO of an organization called the Campaign Against Living Miserably. So they're a suicide prevention charity. And this is what she said. It's, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Suicide thrives in the dark. It gets a grip on you when you keep your suicidal thoughts to yourself. So that's one side of the picture. And Desmond Tutu is going to give us another side of it. Hope is being able to see there is a light in spite of all the darkness. 
So in a sense, we as a collective uh, of people who follow Jesus, we've got this incredible gift that we can offer others. And also, I just want to say, caveat, if you're not feeling that right now, that you feel that you are fully in the darkness, that that is a valid experience, and I do not want in any way to make you feel that that is not um, also under the covering of God's love, because that's vitally important that you hear that too. However, as we accompany others and we have a little bit of that light to give, we'll find that it's very powerful. And it's a very important part of, of how we support other people. Now, before leading Sanctuary in the UK, I, I worked for 20 years with homeless people. So many of you will experience, I think, and again, the, the whole of the conference has been so immersed in, in supporting people who are often on the margins. And um, if you've been part of that with others, then you'll, this will resonate, I hope. Often, I found with the people I work with who are homeless, I encountered incredible resilience on the one hand, often, but also often deep hopelessness some and then again bits in between sometimes life is just like that but both of those extremes were very present to me in the people that I work with and look to support and yet we don't have to experience something extreme as extreme as homelessness to experience hopelessness do we that's something that we can all um, we, is part of our, our human experience but here's the thing Hopelessness and suicide are deeply linked. And research shows us that hopelessness was a really important and, and significant factor um, and predictor of suicidal, suicidal desire. Um, also suicide attempts and suicide deaths. So the fact that people would mark themselves out as feeling hopeless was a very important part of what indicated whether they were going to take action around those emotions. And now whilst all of us might endure seasons of um, perhaps low mood, um, even depression, um, it's not always true that those will be marked by a loss of hope. There's something really tangible about this sense, despite our best efforts that, you know, we, we can't gather it. It's not something that we can manufacture. And in a sense, people who are hopeless experience what you might call an entrapment in their situations. And this idea that there might be no escape from defeat in life is an underlying theme for many people who experience suicidal ideation. And so as a result, cultivating hope is a really important, in the long term, a really important aspect of recovery and moving beyond the possibility of suicide. Now, um, Dr. Ed Schneidman, so he, he's dead now, um, but he was a, a world expert on suicide and he really grew this thinking around it. Talked about this, um, he, he brought two words together, I think it's called a neologism, and he brought it together and he called it psychache. And he named it um, this because he said it's the kind of pain that someone would um, would experience that's very different than perhaps just depression on its own, anxiety on its own, or maybe even existential angst. So he said it's a deeply intense psychological pain which is so catastrophic that a person can only imagine extinguishing it by ending their life. And in recognizing that someone might experience this deep pain, 
we can assure, I think, ensure that when we're speaking into their situations, um, we, we won't ever be in a situation where we, we try and cheer them up or, or make them feel better, but recognising that there needs to be some level of congruence in what we offer if somebody is, is, is naming or mentioning that they, they are considering this. So it's a really important thing to recognise. So a bit more on this. So an unbearable psychological pain and anguish if it's unresolved, it results in suicidal behaviour. And it's about unmet needs, fundamentally. And another thing just I've added at the end there, it's, it's really important we recognise we have different thresholds for psychological pain. That we'll have, you know, what might be tolerable to us is not tolerable to somebody else, even for a short period or a longer period. So, you know, we're, it's not all even. It might be very, very different. We've got different resources. So, being hopeful and staying alert. A bit more information to um, kind of paint the picture here. Um, first of all, a Harvard study identified that 9 out of 10 people who attempt suicide and survive will not go on to die by suicide at a later date. Okay, so there's a, there's a good news situation there. And that maybe chimes with what we heard earlier from Helen about that idea of suicide as a, a temporary solution, um, a, a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So that idea that that might not be something that will be an ongoing experience, even if the issues underlying it may be ongoing. So that's quite an important thing. So this relatively good long-term survival rate is consistent with that, with that observation. And, and, you know, at the same time, there's something else that is really worth bearing in mind, and that's this. This same study identified that 50% of all people who die by suicide have previously self-harmed. Now, we don't have enormous amount of time today to go into the dynamics of self-harm, but I want to flag it because I think it's a really important thing that can sometimes be missed. That, you know, for example, in this study, one in 25 patients who presented to the hospital for, uh, for self-harm died by suicide in the next five years. So if we're seeing that develop within the people that we're supporting or perhaps even, you know, the ones that, that we love or perhaps even ourselves, it's recognising that when it comes to self-harm that we're aware of that connection but also that, we, that maybe action is needed earlier than perhaps is left often. And I just want to say a word on self-harm. Um, Something that, again, if, if we can start to help people identify patterns, then it could really help. So one very obvious thing about self-harm is that um, perhaps, maybe it's not obvious, but it's, it's closely linked to management of stress. So often people who self-harm, they are struggling to manage their emotions in a way, particularly around their level of stress, and this is a way that they start to do that. Um, the thing is, in terms of what can really help somebody it's developing a new set of skills around stress management and um, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very effective um, again all these things don't work for everybody but again captured early on can help people kind of recognize what's going on there and there's a, another kind of therapy that's often very useful which is called dialectical behavioral therapy and now this has been developed for people who experience very, very strong emotions, what you might call kind of extreme emotions, which that kind of parallels with people who might be um, self-harming. 
So th both of those, what they do is they help people develop a different set of skills for managing their stress. Um, there's much more to go into on self-harm, but I just want to flag it quickly because I think if you are seeing people that where it's developing, um, careful kind of observation and support being offered is going to be really important um, given the connection between self-harm and, and suicide. So let's have a look at who's most at risk. Um, we've done that bit. Next up, most at risk. So in a sense, any of us can be at risk at this, but there are some people who, where there are growing numbers, which it's worth us uh, looking out for, and others where it's traditionally been very high numbers and that we still need to be aware of. So one area where there's been massive growth has been around women in their 20s. So um, this particular age group, it's the highest it's been for two decades. So for example, um, in 2016, um, 106 women died by suicide who were under the age of 30. But by 2018, 1,604 so it's been a massive leap. And it's, um, there may be some fairly complex factors here, you know, that are going on. It's a bit hard to really na um, name why this is happening, but it is growing an awful lot. It's growing an awful lot. Increased life pressures, obviously, are part of that. Um, Self-scrutiny that can come from social media might be a small part of adding to that. There are, and, and, and also just, the, the general um, expectation that women should carry more. There are a number of factors that might be going on here, but so far there haven't really been any um, what you might call kind of comprehensive studies of this that, um, that are, are naming exactly why. There's still developing work in this area. Now, for this next one, this may be less surprising, um, and that's around men. So men under 50, it's a single leading cause of death. So that kind of, um, you know, more people die of suicide than cancer or of heart disease or a heart attack um, or even a road traffic accident. So, so that's part of it. But also uh, another thing I would name is that men between the age of 50 and 54 are also highly at risk, particularly if they've recently been through a relationship breakdown or divorce. So again, this is just giving us a bit of a radar for the people that we really need to look out for, uh, particularly if they're the kind of people that maybe don't share what they're feeling very often. Quite important. Um, we've mentioned those with a history of self-harm. Um, another area, thing, area that will be common, and we, we've was named in the programme, that's people who are living with social deprivation. So at the moment, statistically, people in the northwest and the northeast have a higher chance and um, the higher reported numbers but again we'll if we are in communities where that are, are very deprived again it it doesn't you know it, it's obvious that the risks will be higher particularly with escalating bills growing poverty and the issues that are connected with them so what i'd like to do now is just take a minute to look at some of the risk factors themselves so these risk factors uh, characteristics or conditions that increase the chance that a, a person might try to, to take their life. So some broad categories we're going to go for here. One of environmental, um, historical and health. So let's start with health factors. What I'd love from you now is maybe just a handful of reasons why, what do you think some of the, the factors are that, um, why, what, what might be health related that might contribute to the possibility of someone ending their life? 
Any thoughts? Chronic pain, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, it's a big issue, people at the back. Thanks. Loneliness. Isolation is huge. Yeah, thank you. Bereavement, yes, that could be the circumstance that leads to it, definitely. Anything else that we, we would name as a health? Limited abilities, you say. So, yeah, so that could be to do with sort of um, uh, disability and the isolation that comes from that or the lack of access to community that might come from that, for example. Um, it could be to do with a learning disability. That might be another area that's part of it. Um, any more? Want to list? Progressive disease. Uh, that's really helpful to name. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's another element. Um, mental health conditions themselves. I mean, that may be the sort of elephant in the room. It's, it might seem obvious, but particularly often people with um, with a, a mental health diagnosis, um, particularly where it can be quite disabling, um, they may be at higher risk. So it's just worth looking at. There's another one here, and that's around personality traits of aggression. People who, who, you know, we might be working with people whose relationships are just very unstable all the time, that their family relationships might feel a bit dysfunctional and inconsistent. And then also, um, we've, we've covered most of those. Another area is traumatic brain injury. So that's a whole list of health issues, not exhaustive. But again, what I'm trying to do is just paint a picture of, are oh, these are the people we need to look out for, you know, if they're in our midst? What about environmental factors? We've sort of touched on a couple of those already. What sort of things might fit this? So in kind of what's within people's environment that might impact the likelihood of them choosing to end their life? Any thoughts? Poor housing, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a really, really helpful factor. Kind of without that stability and and you know even just safe and and warm housing, that that can be a big factor. Anything else on that list? Yes, really key. Um, I would say that this is increasingly one of the big frustrations: is that people need support, but often can't f quite find the right support at the time that they need it, and often need support to ad um, and advocacy to get to it. And, and some tenacity at times to do that. Thank you. Anything else in the environmental stage of things? Lack of sunlight. Lack of sunlight. Yeah, yeah. Probably one, co one factor among many. Um, it probably needs to be added up into a number of different things. But certainly lack of sunlight can lead to low mood. No question. That's been proven. So, yeah. But there probably are going to be another other life circumstances as well that would lead to it. It's probably quite rare for that on its own. But a combination of factors. Um, a few other things here. Um, access to lethal means. Now, this is probably less of a thing in the UK, um, but again, if someone is a regular drug user and, and one where there may be a level of danger in, in terms of their drug use, particularly injecting drug users, then that might be an area to look at because, again, overdoses can happen and, um, and also um, through other means as well as a result of that. Um, put prolonged stress there as well. That's another important environmental factor. So again, poor relationships often at the bottom of that. Stressful life events. So we've touched on a number of these. Um, you know, financial crisis, financial ruin, you know, when you've, you've lost everything. Those sorts of things, really important. Um, the other thing that is at the bottom of that list is exposure to someone else's suicide. 
So again, that might be more surprising, but again, that can de develop, you know, um, people might respond um, in trauma to that. And that might be, again, another thing that, that impacts. So a few different factors. Um, this one's a much smaller list, the historical list, but any thoughts on that one? Um, what historically might impact whether people choose to end their life, anything within the history? Abuse, I think that's probably the main important and large thing on that list. Um, and equally, another obvious one, previous suicide attempts and perhaps a family history of suicide. There's been, you know, again, there can be a really strong uh, causal link between those two things. Um, is there anything else that we've not put in those three categories that you would want to name in this room that you would say, I think this is a really important factor that we all need to hear? What a, what would be another risk factor, if anything? I just want to give you room. It may be that it feels comprehensive, but are there any other things that aren't on those lists? Thank you at the back. Thank you. Yeah, that's really important. Thanks for naming that. And again, with with that package, often sometimes isolation and um, a lack sometimes with some people in neurodiverse, the difficulty in self-advocacy. Again, that might not always be the case, but that can be part and parcel. So thank you. At the back, thanks. That's, I mean, a really great way of kind of naming the whole of our kind of societal struggles at the moment. So thank you for capturing that. That's brilliant. I've got, got you at the back as well. What would you like to add? Um, Shame. Very interesting. Yeah, that's great. Uh, were you thinking of anything specific there or um, would you like to unpack that a bit more? Very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really good, and and subtly put as well. It can be around that. Could, you know, some cultures it's an honour-based culture, and so it's a bit more clear in terms of the code of behaviour that's expected. And others, it's much more embedded around kind of, you know, a sense of, you know, uh, your your uh, gender identity, your the sense of kind of expectation around what it is to be a man, to provide or not, to be a father or not. These kinds of things. What does it mean? And and perhaps also we could include within that. Um, issues around sexuality and gender identity more broadly and again how our communities are responsive to that and how we you know whether we feel at home or not within ourselves and around the people that that, that are around us too you know again things are shifting culturally in that way but again for um, many people who are who are LGBTQ plus experience suicidal ideation and and some level of um, again shame for some people might be a part of that too. Not everybody, of course, but just bringing it back to where you were. So thank you. You've got another thing to add on. Demon possession. Well, that's a really interesting question. So it's sort of it's a hard one to quantify, isn't it? In terms of um, on the scale of what might be. Um, someone's spiritual disruption to what might be more around mental health and how you identify that. So it's um, in terms of identifying the cause, um, it's a difficult one to get to, isn't it? But what I would say is that there, are w there will be a sp spiritual elements that are going on for people that we can see, we can observe in terms of what they're drawn to and what they express where where that all lies it needs a bit of careful handling 
because of the fact that there's often complexity around it. So just a word of caution on that. There's probably a whole seminar on that um, to unpack theology behind it. But um, helpful to name that the, might, the spiritual elements that might be going on for people that are dark and difficult, you know, whatever your th theology names that as, it's something that we need to be aware of. Thank you for naming that. Yeah, were you thinking of anything particular from your own b knowledge and background? Yeah, I yes. Think from my own perspective, we have a huge of Right, yeah. And absolutely kind of yeah. often outcast within a community, for example. Yeah. And, and even within, within uh, prisons themselves, the level of kind of isolation that comes with that is massive, isn't it? So thank you for naming that. Addiction. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So we've got quite a comprehensive list of, of these different factors. So again, it's just bringing a bit of an awareness. We've got 10 minutes. Very good. So we're moving on to a process for uh, offering support to somebody. And we're going to try and do that in 10 minutes. So let's see. Let's see how we go. So um, it's, it's really important that we're in a position where we can offer the right kind of help at the right time. So here's a model that I hope might stay in your mind. So it's called see, say, and signpost. See the problem, say the words, and signpost to support. So this is one developed by the um, Zero Suicide Alliance. And what we're going to do is just unpack each of these different areas across the next few minutes. So first of all, we're going to see the problem. Now, um, there's a list going around, and if you want the slides, um, just pop your email down and I will ensure that you get them. They'll, they'll particularly the resources at the end, if that's useful, just pop, pop your email on there if you'd like to and I will get those to you. Um, two aspects to seeing the problem, I would say one is spotting the signs that someone might be at risk and the second then is to prepare for a helpful conversation. So what might be the clues that somebody might be at risk, higher risk of acting on suicidal thoughts? So I think things such as if we're people in regular contact, some very, very obvious things might be on this list of kind of have they stopped attending the sessions that we're at and have we noticed changes in their appearance or signs of distress? So there might be a shift in their behaviour, maybe visibly upset or withdrawn. So... What sort of things might, might be part of that? Well, for example, it might be agitation, dramatic mood swings, expressions of hopelessness. We might not see any of this. I just want to put a caveat out there. You might not see any of this, but you may see that change. Withdrawal is probably the likely one. I think withdrawal is, is often more difficult to spot. And, and again, I think if you are working in a context where you're as a team, I think this is where vigilance is quite important in terms of how we follow up when we're concerned about people. That we do actually spot that they're not there. That we've got some kind of mechanism to spot that collectively, and it's not on one person. Because again, that can be too much pressure. Um, sometimes um, you can observe that people just aren't eating. That's another part of it, um, that they might lose interest in daily activities. Um, there might be some other part and parcel things that you start to observe around their physical distress, you know, that might be there. Um, and, you know, fatigue, you can see that they're weary, they're less communicative. And the obvious thing, of course, that they might even talk about suicide or self-harm. So... In terms of this, it's really important, perhaps, in terms of an effective conversation, you might want to be thinking about your location. 
You might want to be thinking about your opener. So, for example, I've been worried about you recently. Can we talk about what's been happening and, and how you've been feeling? You might be also thinking in preparing, how am I going to signpost this person if it does it is revealed that they're really they they are considering um, suicidal action. How am I going to do that? Also, another thing I would say is you might want to be ready if this conversation does lead to that to accompany them to A and E if it's urgent. And you might want to think also about an agreed follow up time. And you might also want to agree not to keep the conversation confidential um, if they've expressed these thoughts. If you're concerned about their well-being, that will be key as well. And the other thing you might want to think about is the support that you will need in preparation um, to have this conversation and to de debrief afterwards. That's very, very important. Next up, as we blitz through, so those were the those elements. You'll get those on the list from me we, um, when you, if you want the slides afterwards. Say the words. So, of course, every situation is going to require something different. But the most important thing I would say is take your time and allow for time. And I think if we're going to put it down to one thing to convey, the one thing that we need to convey most is that we care about that person. You know, how are we going to do that with our body language, with our listening skills? Um, but also that you've noticed that something has changed. So you've noticed that something's changed and that you're here to help. And, and also being aware that most people would find it really difficult to talk about, of course. Very few people would probably instantly say, yes, this is happening. So be aware of that and perhaps some potential barriers to get to the conversation if that's what's going on for them. And really working to try and put that person at ease. You might need to pursue a little to get there. One thing that is very helpful is being direct. So using the word suicide doesn't put anyone at risk. It doesn't put the thought into their head. If it's there already, it doesn't make it more likely for it to happen. It's just making it clear. And so a phrase such as that sounds really difficult. Can you tell me more about how you've been feeling? But also naming saying, has, has that led to you thinking that you might want to end your life? Or have you had thoughts of suicide? That clarity can be very helpful. Many people report back who have uh, had received this intervention that, it, that the clarity was helpful. And when someone's feeling very low, they can sometimes think about suicide. That's another way you, that you could offer it. Another thing that, as we've, we've heard, um, self-harm can be an indicator that people may, uh, may um, choose to uh, take their own life. So you could you could ask this question, have you harmed yourself or have you had any thoughts of harming yourself? Those kinds of things. And also another key question that many of you may know already, have you made a plan to end your life? Again, it's just getting really clear, perhaps at a time that feels that it's quite sensitive. What do I, how do I approach this? Clarity is key. It's very important. Um, one thing to do is that's to try and avoid um, phrases that might place blame on someone. 
So uh, the classic of um, you're not doing anything, you're not thinking of doing anything silly. Um, what even though that's what that's trying to do is kind of you know calm the situation often when it's said. Um, what it does is it takes the focus on the individual off the individual, and it, it can be quite sort of minimising language actually for the emotions. We talked about psychache earlier on, so try and avoid that phrase. Um, maybe also try and avoid think of all the people that would miss you. Now, this might seem kind, but it places blame on the person and it takes them away from their feelings and what they're experiencing. So that's quite important too. So it's very much about focusing on that person and their feelings and what they've said to you as you respond. So the other part of this, of course, is expressing concern for that individual and then very much saying, you know, help is available and I would like to help you access that. That's really important and key. And even if someone hasn't made a plan, um, if they're thinking about suicide, it's very important they get help at the right time. And so at this stage, your intention is, the, um, is, is to line up the possibility of signposting them on. Right. I'm a bit behind on my clicking. There we go. So I know we've got to wrap this up soon, so I'm just going to move to signpost to support. So... This is what it might look like. Um, ask them whether they, they, they might at this stage need some formal support. If, they feel, if it feels that they're resistant, I think it's really important that you can be as persuasive as possible and say, look, I'm really concerned for you. I feel it's really important. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable leaving you as we are now. I think we need to find some help. So that might take some work and some support and might need help from somebody else in some circumstances if you're concerned enough. But also being clear about the next steps and saying, well, these, these are the options. We can talk to GP or we can go to A&E now and narrowing it down. So clarity on that's important. And also, if they've, for example, the outcome is, you know, I've been having these thoughts, but I've not taken any steps around it, saying, well, you know, I think your support's really important. When you've accessed that, can we talk? So how we have a follow-up plan in place is going to be key. So it's been a real whistle-stop, but that's where we're up to. These resources will be in the email. Um, and just to say, Hub of Hope, I think, is probably one of the most helpful things. Um, if you haven't come across it, it's really good. You put your postcode in there, and it tells you of emergency support that's available locally. My advice would be to call that before you have the conversation with somebody so that you know what actually is available in that time for someone. Um, the other thing to say is, we really didn't touch on this enough, but when we're thinking about how we're living in a hope-filled way and offering support to others, for hope to take hold, it really needs to resonate with that person's lived reality. So it's really important that we can just work with them as they are and support them as they are, but also recognize that there's an ongoing journey for many of us, which involves getting to that point, that will involve connecting in with others, being encouraged to, to kind of break the isolation often they're feeling. And for some, it might be about these new skills to manage emotions. And, you know, I've put it at the end, but I hope this kind of can run throughout this. Ongoing prayer for and with people, obviously by their consent, by their own volition, is a really important part of the support that we can offer. And also the support that we get for ourselves from God when we're in those moments. It's very important that we do that. Briefly, um, 
because we only got we probably run over already by a couple of minutes i just wanted to tell you about the sanctuary course and it's a free course and really its purpose is to help you as a church become more comfortable around this conversation so crisis support doesn't just fall on the pastoral team's shoulders but actually mental health becomes a much more normal conversation and a way of us understanding who we are with each other in community with God, what it means to live with well-being and flourishing, and also what it means to live with difficulty and challenge together. So it's a free course. Um, if, you, if I've got your email, I can send you details of it. Leaflets are on the table, and I'll leave some downstairs as well. Um, but um, you know, I'm I'm a huge advocate for it because I've seen it change communities and change lives and and help people go into spaces where they think this is a church where we can talk about this, and I know that you know there'll be a good level of support and understanding uh, when I'm there. So I just advise you to do that. Um, there's really quickly Sanctuary Songs is an album that we developed with a, a musical collective called The Porter's Gate. Um, you'll find it on Spotify. Um, you'll find it on uh, on Amazon Music and all of these things. And it's a set of music that we we released in September, which is to really help people in church um, access a space of worship where they know that their more difficult emotions and feelings are things that God will come alongside them in. So it's that balance to the, the God that we serve who is all-powerful and the one that we want to glorify and that God that will be with us in the mix of the mess and the difficulty and the challenges. So um, I can send you some info on that if you'd like. Um, I'm so sorry the time is gone. We could have talked about this for at least the afternoon and I really appreciate your attention for what's been a real whistle-stop tour through such an important topic. But thank you. Thank you to you all. Many thanks to Corin Pilling. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that seminar, there are links to useful organisations in the show notes attached to this episode. Thanks so much for joining me at the Jubilee Plus podcast. There are plenty more seminars and keynote sessions from the Churches That Change Communities Conference 2023. Just have a search through our archive and you'll see plenty more options to listen to this week. And thanks again to Owen O'Brien for permission to use his music for the podcast. The track's called Living in the Shadow and it features Samuel. And you can find the link to that again in the show notes if you'd like to buy it. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Jubilee Plus podcast. Shelter.